of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, so readings for this week. Um, if you're not aware, so the, the reading plan for the summer is taking us through all of the Pauline epistles. Um, so we've been through Romans already. This week we'll finish up 1 Corinthians. Uh, and starting on um, Thursday, we jump into 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, and just a quick note. So 2 Corinthians, Paul in a lot of ways is, is having to defend his apostolicity. Um, so he's defending the fact that he is an apostle uh, chosen by God and given by God to do the things that he's doing. Um, because in Corinth, there are some that are um, frequently identified as super apostles, um, right, who spring up false teachers teaching against, uh, teaching against uh, what has been taught according to the word of God by Paul. Um, uh, and, and Paul is getting... Um, it is great to read these letters back to back because Paul, by the end of 2 Corinthians, you can tell he's very frustrated with Corinth. Um, he wants to come in person, but he, wants, he would really like them to get their act together before he comes in person because he wants to have a nice visit. Uh, and he doesn't want to have to spend his whole time there yelling at them. Um, and so actually, by, toward the end of the epistle, he actually says, uh, this is, he basically says, this is now the second time I'm writing to you. Don't make me write again. Um, so, so that's, that's coming up here in 2 Corinthians. All right, if you flip to the middle page, the memory work for this week, uh, we'll start with, uh, with the Bible verse from 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we'll, we'll read that all together. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in our walk through the table of duties this summer, this week we get to... Uh, um, the instruction to husbands, and we'll read all of that all together there. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. 1 Peter 3, 7. And then, husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Colossians 3.19 The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O oh God, because your abiding presence always goes with us, keep us aware of your daily mercies, that we may live secure and content in your eternal love. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Alrighty, so go ahead and take that, fold it up, put it in your pocket, uh, use it uh, in, your, in your daily prayers this week at home. 
not much by way of announcement this morning. Um, as Pastor Clemmer mentioned after church, uh, we are uh, putting, getting Sunday school teachers together for the upcoming year. Um, so please consider teaching Sunday school. Um, just so you know, it's not a full year commitment. We rotate teachers on a quarterly basis. So you're only committing for approximately three months. Um, so if you would be willing to do that, you can contact uh, Pastor Clemmer um, or, uh, or Jesse Sweat, our, super, our Sunday school superintendent. Um, also, um, so we used to have a fellowship coordinator position who, put, who, was, who was in charge of putting together, especially big events, but all sorts of events uh, uh, that played a big role in things like Oktoberfest and Ribfest and things of that nature. Um, we don't have that position anymore, so we're, we're trying to fill that with a, by committee, I guess, sorry, because of our constitutional language, we're filling that by means of a society. Um, it's not a committee, it's a society. That's actually, according to our constitution, an important distinction. Um, so fellowship society, seeking volunteers. So if you would be willing to help plan some of the, these big events that we have every year, because uh, the, the events don't plan themselves, uh, please get in contact with Pastor Clemmer or the church office. And also, just a quick reminder, there's a couple of you in here, um, for youth going to higher things this summer, we're having a, a uh, I'll keep it as brief as possible, meeting after late church in the youth room. Uh, lunch will be provided, uh, and we're just going to go over things like schedule, rules, um, I have several other things on the agenda that I'm forgetting, that's why I made an agenda. Um, so that is, that's happening as soon as late church is over. Uh, in the youth room, parents and youth uh, for that meeting who are going to hire things. Anything else that should be, that, that we should all be aware of this morning before we jump in? I mostly ask that to give myself a, a moment to take a drink of my coffee. All right, so back into our uh, study of the liturgy. And this week, I printed out handouts. So since we, uh, since we don't have hymnals on in here, you do have a handout then, at least of the, um, of the uh, parts of the liturgy that I at least hope to get through. So last week, uh, I included the Kyrie. We, we pretty much did that last week, but, uh, but you have it there because the Kyrie is really intended to lead into the Gloria Excelsis. So uh, as, we as we remember going back, we have our distinction between propers and ordinaries. Ordinaries are those... Uh, big parts of the service that happen every every week, and propers um, being the things that change every week, uh, and the five historical ordinaries of the mass, as it would be called, uh, as we would say of the divine service, the five historical ordinaries uh, being the Kyrie, the Gloria in Excelsis, the Nicene Creed, the Sanctus, and the Agnus Dei. Um, so last week we covered the Kyrie. Uh, and all of those are in Latin, except the originally in Latin, except the Kyrie, which is originally Greek. So, uh, so Kyrie eleison is a Greek term. Glory and excelsis, everything else is Latin. Um, so last week we talked about the Kyrie, um, and how historically, so this, this morning in church we did divine service setting two, and we have that what's called ectene form of prayer, where someone bids a prayer and ends it by saying, let us pray to the Lord, and the congregation responds, Lord, have mercy. Um, 
That is, a, historically, that, that, that's a historic form of prayer, uh, but that wasn't historically the shape of the curie, uh, the ordinary uh, that we know as the curie. Um, that form of prayer historically would have taken place um, where we have the prayer of the church. Um, so historically, the curie is as you have it on your sheet, either in threefold form like we have it or in up to ninefold form. Uh, and what I like, and like I mentioned this last week, but what I specifically like about the threefold curie is that it has a very, uh, a very identifiably, noticeably Trinitarian shape, right? So, Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us. Um, and so we have this, uh, so we have this Trinitarian uh, curie where we cry out to the Lord for mercy, um, and. And as we noted, we've just had our sins forgiven, but when the Kyrie comes in, uh, there is no confession absolution at the beginning of the service when the Kyrie is, uh, is made part of the, of the divine service and its historical development. Um, and so, and so uh, this is a plea for mercy as we come into the presence of an almighty but merciful and gracious God. Um, and, I, I, the reason I, and that's the reason I printed the Kyrie here is because we actually have this Movement in the liturgy, right? This very logical sort of movement. So we, so we have the intro that gets the pres- the pastor and his assistants into the chancel. We cry out as we enter into the presence of the Lord. Lord, have mercy, right? Which is a right. We need mercy because of our sin, our sinfulness, uh, coming into the presence of a holy God. And what's the immediate response uh, that we have then after we cry out, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Then the pastor intones the, the Gloria Excelsis, which is what? Uh, I mean, what are the first words of that? Glory be to God on high and, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Uh, and and which, which scriptural narrative does this draw our attention to? Christmas, right? Uh, these are the words, glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. These are the words of the angels to the shepherds in the fields surrounding Bethlehem, right? Uh, so you have, you have the one angel that comes and says, Fear not, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And uh, this, is, this shall be a sign to you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Uh, and this follows the Kyrie, right? Um, uh, because when you're asking for mercy, right? Lord, have mercy. Uh, what we are actually praying for by extension, when we, by asking the Lord for mercy, uh, the fact that we need mercy is causing within us something of turmoil, right? I am a sinner coming into the presence of a holy God, and that creates within me turmoil, right? And it should. <laughs> when we consider our sins, we should be afraid of the holiness of God, right? And so we come begging his mercy, and then uh, in response to that cry for mercy, we have glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We are reminded, after we beg for mercy, we are reminded what God did uh, in order to show us that mercy and grant us peace. We're reminded of Christmas, namely 
uh, when Christ, uh, when we see Christ having come to earth in our human flesh um, for the specific purpose of what? Why is on Christmas we celebrate Christ coming in the flesh to do what? To die. To die. And for what purpose, though? To die for our sins, right? So we have this movement, a cry for mercy, and then a proclamation of peace. Um, but this peace, is, this peace has a basis, namely, uh, in the saving work of Jesus, all right? So glory be to God on high, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And at that point, at that point, the, uh, the glory of Excelsis uh, leaves off its direct quotation of scripture, and it's, it is a hymn of... Uh, that's typically attribu attributed, I think, to Ambrose. That, uh, that Ambrose is the source of, of most of the rest of this. Um, so, uh, as far as ceremony goes with the glory in excelsis, uh, so our, at this point, we are facing the altar, our backs to the congregation. So I don't know if you can see what we're doing with our hands, but when the pastor intones, glory be to God on high, he actually lifts his hands up, and then... He keeps them up while the, while the uh, congregation responds, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, and then brings his hands back together for the rest of the Gloria. Uh, right? So, so raising hands toward, uh, toward the heavens as an indication of, uh, of glo the glory that we give to God. And then there's a few other notable things, uh, ceremonially in the Gloria, and we'll, we'll cover those as we, as we get to them. Um, so the general shape of the Gloria, it is in a lot of ways a miniature version of the creed, but not quite as historically based. We have the works of Christ narrated for us, um, but, not in the, but not in the same sort of like straightforward chronological historical sense uh, that, we'll, that we'll get in the creed. Um, because the Gloria is to magnify the works of Christ, um, but specifically in the form of actually... Uh, giving glory and praise uh, to God. So, so we have then, uh, and on earth peace give will toward men, so then we praise thee, we bless thee, we worship thee, we glorify thee, we give thanks to thee, all these things, all in a row. Um, and, and, and this is another reason that, I'm, uh, that I like doing this from setting three. A setting three really does have the best translation of the Gloria from the original Latin. Um, so in the um, settings one and two, the glory is fine, but it does kind of shove some things together and reorder some things, and it's and it's not quite as not quite as crisp and clear. So, um, but the Latin's very clear: laudamus te, benedicimus te, adoramus te, glorificamus te, gratias agimas tibi. So we have all these things, right? So we, uh, but but what's the reason for all of them? We so we praise. See, there's a and th these all these things are all a little bit different: praise, bless. Worship, glorify, give thanks. Um, they all have their own nuance, but in a lot of ways, they are kind of synonyms, right? So uh, to praise being to uh, outwardly extol the works of God. To bless uh, means to speak well of something, right? Uh, at least in this, this word, this, this use of the word bless means to speak well of. It's from the Greek word eulageo or the Latin benedico, uh, which, is to, which is good speech, um, Worship has to do with um, actually falling down and, and giving the honor one, one is owed as, as God. Um, so that's why a historic ceremony at the words we worship thee is to bow the head. We praise thee, we bless thee, we worship thee. Uh, glorify, 
very similar to praise and bless. And then finally, we give thanks to thee. Um, but the next words, for thy great glory, is not just the rationale for we give thanks to thee, but for thy great glory is the rationale for everything that has preceded it, starting with we praise thee. We, you could almost, this would get long and tedious, but you could almost say, we praise thee for thy great glory. We bless thee for great, thy great glory. We worship thee for thy great glory. We glorify thee for thy great glory. And we give thanks to thee for thy great glory. Um, and so what is, what is the great glory of God? Where is the glory of God chiefly made manifest? And this is, this is a little counterintuitive to us. Uh, on the cross, God's great glory is chiefly manifested on the cross. Um, because the glory of God, uh, among other things, has to do with, with his reign, right? Because he's a king. So his reign over his enemies, that is, I mean, that is really, in a lot of time, in a lot of cases, the substance of what it is to get glory is to reign over enemies. Um, so God has glory of himself, but his glory is chiefly manifested in the cross where he gets uh, the ultimate victory over his enemies, right? Namely, the enemies of sin, the enemies of death, and the enemy of the devil, right? Um, so already in the glory, up but from the glory be to God on high for thy great glory, we have encapsulated there the whole life of Christ in poetic and somewhat cryptic language, but we have encapsulated there the whole life of Christ from his birth uh, all the way to his death, and this is a reason for praise, right? We praise God because, um, because he is God, but also because he has saved us through the death of Christ. We speak well of God because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. We worship him for that reason. We glorify him for that reason. And especially we give thanks to him um, for his death on the cross and his resurrection. And then also, of course, his glory is now... Um, so it's chiefly revealed to us in the cross, but now it is... Um, his glory is full and, un and unshielded, you might say, right? It's not hidden anymore. Um, as Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning for all eternity. Um, we don't see that yet. It's hidden from us, but we will see it. And that is a reason to give God uh, praise, blessing, worship, glory, and thanks. All right, so, so then we, um, so we start off with this, with this marvelous statement of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, and the right response to it. Uh, but we've only, at this point, we've only used the word God in, the, in something of the abstract. Um, so now we're Christians, and because we're Christians, when I say glory be to God on high, you all know who I'm talking about. Um, but just in case someone wandering in off the street doesn't know who we're talking about, then we move on in the, uh, in the Gloria to start um, giving more precise definition um, to who this God is and what it and what He has done, uh, that we should uh, that He has this glory and that we should give Him this praise, blessing, honor, and worship. Um, so we have so we start off with then, O Lord God, Heavenly King, God the Father Almighty. All right. So um, again, recognizing this uh, this clear confession from the Scriptures that God is King. Right. He sits on the throne. Um, kings sit on thrones. He exercises 
judgment. He's a king. All right. So and this king is none other than God, the father. So we talked a few weeks ago about what it means that God is father, right? That um, that he treats us as children and that uh, he has a son by nature, namely Christ. And because we are um, in Christ through baptism, we also have the father as our father. All right, so we, so we start to define specifically who this God is that we're talking about by acknowledging uh, the Father, our heavenly King. Um, and then we go on, O oh Lord, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. All right, so this Father has a Son, an only begotten Son, and that only begotten Son is Jesus Christ. And then you might expect, if we're, if we're getting into what seems like it's going to be an obviously Trinitarian formula, you'd expect the next line might be something about the Holy Spirit, uh, but Ambrose or whoever wrote this um, can't quite get there because at the mention of Christ, uh, he feels the need to elaborate a little bit on, on, what, on what this Christ has done, right? So the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Um, so we're going so to take a, a, the next couple sentences to, to sing uh, specifically to Jesus here. So, O Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father. Um, and so here he's introduced now a very significant title for Christ. Well, two significant titles, but um, I guess three. But the one I'm really thinking of is Lamb of God. But, um, so, but already here we've, we've identified Jesus as Lord. And that's important because if we're identifying Jesus as Lord, what are we saying about Jesus that say, I don't know how much you know about Arianism, but what are we saying about Jesus that the Arians wouldn't say by saying, oh, Lord God? That he is God, that he's equal to the Father, and that he's eternal. That's what we mean to say by this, right? So we, we, we acclaim Jesus Christ as God, oh, Lord God. Then the next title we give him there, oh, Lord God, Lamb of God. Um, so what's that recall? Okay, sacrifice the cross. Um, where is Jesus first identified in the Bible as the Lamb of God? By John the Baptist, right? Uh, Jesus is walking by the Jordan after he's been baptized, and John points at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Um, it's already here, so we're remembering that one of the chief things uh, that Christ has done for us is that he has taken away the sin of the world by his sacrifice. So a lot of the language here is not terribly elaborate, but it hints at things, right? It gives you a little nugget here, and you're supposed to fill in the rest of it based on what you know about the, the life of Christ from the scriptures, right? So Lamb of God, Son of the Father, again, uh, just confessing what it confessed a line above, uh, that Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. Um, and then we, we start jumping ahead to one of the other ordinaries. Uh, which of the other ordinaries are we suddenly jumping ahead to in the next line? Well, sort of. But we wouldn't be jumping ahead then. Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. That's the on you stay, right? So we actually have a mini, uh, a somewhat paraphrased form of the on you stay right in the middle of the glory and excelsis. Um, so again, we're addressing God here. Um, so uh, we've exclaimed what God has done to give us mercy and then... Uh, we, we start praying to Christ uh, to continue to give us that mercy. So, uh, thou that 
so he's the Lamb of God that takest away the sin of the world. Um, so have mercy on us. You've taken away the sin of the whole world. Therefore, because you have done that, have mercy on us. We're, it's, it's sort of like Moses, right? Um, we're not asking as though we're not sure he's going to do it. Uh, it's one of those times where we're holding God to his promises, right? So when, uh, so when the Israelites are in the desert and they rebel and God tells Moses, uh, get out of the way, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. Uh, and I'll make a great nation out of you. Moses intercedes for him. And he says, um, oh, Lord, remember your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can't wipe them out. And of course, when Moses says that, then God relents, right? Um, so we're doing the same sort of thing here. Christ, you are the Lamb of God that has taken away the sin of the world. You have done this, so have mercy on us. That's why you died for us, so give us that mercy. And then we repeat, we repeat the first part again. Thou that takest away the sin of the world, receive our prayer. Um, so receive, receive this prayer that we offer to you now and have mercy on us. And thou that sittest at the right hand of God the Father, have mercy upon us. Um, so Christ has not only died, but what are we confessing in that line? Thou that sittest at the right hand of God the Father. What are we confessing with those words? That he ascended, uh, but what happened? So we've, so we've, we've talked about Lamb of God. And we've gotten to the ascension. So we've got died and ascended. But then what necessarily must must happen in between? Resurrection. 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 Right. So here we, like I said, it's almost creedal, not quite as obvious. We're not saying these things like we do in the creed. We don't say he died and was buried, and the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven. But but it's all there, just, just in, a, I guess, a more poetic sort of form. So thou that sittest at the right hand of God the Father. And we, and we have this in various places, right? That uh, We have it in Mark, the resurrection account, or the ascension account. I really like Mark's ascension account because he tells us something that Luke doesn't tell us in Luke or Acts. Is that Christ ascended and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And I think you've got to read Mark. Along, this is kind of a tangent, but oh well. I think you've got to read Mark along with Luke and Acts for the Ascension uh, to understand why the disciples are, 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 so, are so fixated on heaven after Jesus is taken from their sight. Um, because remember, the Gospels record eyewitness testimony. Um, so Luke doesn't tell us that the disciples saw Jesus sit down at the right hand of the Father. But Mark does. So that means, so Luke just says he was taken from their sight, and an angel comes up and says, hey, what are you guys doing staring at the sky? It's pointless. Um, but, I, but, but I think when we read that, what I often, what I frequently imagined until not that long ago, was that Jesus kind of went up into the air, and then a cloud, and then a cloud blocked him, and they just saw Jesus go up in the air, and he just kind of vanished. That's not the case. The Gospels arrive at his testimony. Um, Mark says... He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That means when the disciples saw Jesus ascend, they saw him walk into the throne room of God and sit down. Um, which is much more glorious and marvelous than if Jesus had just elevated a few feet and vanished, right? So of course they're staring up into the sky. They just saw the glory of heaven right in front of their faces. They saw Jesus sit down at the right hand of the Father. Um, so like, I mean... <laughs> I mean, if, if nothing else, they're just dumbstruck because of, because of uh, the glory that they have just seen, which is why the angels got to bring them back down to earth, as it were. 
uh, and tell him to, 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 uh, to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Um, but yeah, so we, but we recognize this too, right? Who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, right? Um, that's a confession, of course, that Christ, though he's not seen, yet he is living, that he is reigning, um, and that the right hand of the Father is above, is above all things, so that the right hand of the Father is present throughout all creation, right? So, um, and because he's at the right hand of the Father, um, what sort of function will he carry out from, the thro from his throne at the right hand of the Father? Judgment, Judgment right? And so because we, thou that sittest at the right hand of the Father is almost another way of saying, thou who will come to judge the quick and the dead, um, and since you will come to quick judge the quick and the dead, therefore again, have mercy on us. Uh, then we have to complete the, the Trinitarian thought, so um, have mercy upon us. Uh, why? For thou only art holy, right? Thou only art the Lord. And now we finally finish the Trinitarian thought. Thou only, O Christ, with the Holy Ghost, art most high in the glory of God the Father. We get that final robust uh, Trinitarian confession at the end there. Amen. All right, so... Um, so we give, uh, so we, we start the, the service proper with the Kyrie, where we beg for mercy. We have the exclamation of what God has done to give us mercy, namely sending his son into our flesh uh, to bear our sin and to take away the sin of the world. Um, and because of that, um, he is most especially worthy of our praise, our glory, our, uh, our honor, and our thanksgiving. Um, and that this work of salvation by which God is merciful to us is actually a work of the whole Trinity. Even though Christ is the only one who dies, it is the whole Trinity is involved, uh, and it is the will of the whole Trinity to, have sal to give us salvation in this way. Um, and so we give praise and glory to the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the salvation he's given us uh, through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Anything, anything on the Gloria? So there's a couple of, uh, do you have something, James? Uh, yeah, um, you talked about the glory, but it seems like much of the church and much of history wouldn't have, they would have been almost theologians of glory rather than um, theologians of the cross, so they would have seen the glory of God as Would people have actually gotten the you know, glory they were talking about? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good, it's a good question. It's hard to tell. Um, throughout time, sure, right? I mean, anywhere you have good Johannine theologians, you're going to have that, right? Uh, Christ's exaltation in the Gospel of John is nothing else than his lifting up on the cross. So if you've got, I mean, and the church has always had, in some pockets, you know, some, you know, it's sometimes better than others. Certainly made more of an emphasis and more robust again, thank, thank the Lord, uh, with, with Luther and the Reformation. But um, the church was, remember, the Lord always has his remnant, of course, right? Um, so even when the church was at its worst, right before the Re Reformation, right, there were, there were Christians, right? Luther maybe originally thought he only he was left, but God, ha God had probably spared something like 7,000 who had not yet bent the knee to the Pope. So... 
Do y'all like how I just uh, equivocated the Pope and, and Baal? Uh, I thought that was fun. Um, so as far as ceremony goes uh, with the Gloria, so one of the unique things about the Gloria, of course, um, is that we don't always sing it. Um, so what are the seasons where we don't sing the Gloria in Excelsis? This is probably pretty obvious, but just to get it out there. Lent and Advent. So what types, so does anyone know what we call, what type of seasons Lent and Advent are? Penitential. And what, does, what is penitent? What does it mean to be penitent? Okay. Okay. So penitents do frequently kneel. That is typically the posture of a penitent. Um, but penitents, right? It, it sounds similar to penance or penit or penitent. It's like uh, that's the noun form, right? Someone is a penitent. Um, and and so it has to do with repentance. All right. Uh, the penitential system in the Roman Catholic Church was their system of repentance. This is how, this is what the shape of your repentance must look like if, if you want to have forgiveness, right? That's how they do it. But it doesn't have to be, we don't have to let the Roman Catholics have all the words. We can take them back and use them the right way, and we should. So penitent or penitential, right? Um, so we have penitence, which is repentance, and that's specifically... The seasons of Advent and Lent are seasons of penitence or um, increased repentance. Uh, and Advent, we're, uh, what are we, this is also not super, this is also a little counterintuitive. What is the season of Advent anticipating? Everyone, see, I always thought it was Christmas too. And that's the obvious, that's kind of the obvious thing because at the end of the season of Advent, we, we celebrate Christmas. But Advent is actually anticipating something else. The second coming. Advent is really anticipating the coming of Christ at the end of the world. Uh, and that is a cause to be repentant, right? Uh, because when he comes, he comes to judge the quick and the dead, right? Uh, and so it's good to live in repentance, anticipating uh, the second coming of Christ. And Lent, the season of repentance, as we ponder uh, what Christ uh, what Christ had to suffer for our good, right, for our salvation, uh, is again then um, a, a time where we reflect on our sin and our repentance. And part of those seasons of penitence are frequently increased fasting, and sometimes that fasting takes a liturgical form, specifically in that we don't, in, in Advent and Lent, we don't sing the Gloria and Excelsis. Um, and, we, and, and what we're confessing there, the reason we, we omit those, uh, is not because God is less glorious during Advent or Lent, um, but what we, what we are recognizing is that words of praise are actually a gift, right? Uh, we get to say these words of praise because God has graciously revealed it to us um, uh, and, because, uh, and because through the work of the Holy Spirit, we recognize God to be God, and so we say these uh, we recognize these words of praise are a gift and not a right. Um, and we also recognize that um, while we are still on earth, we are sojourners, as it were, in a foreign land. Um, and so if you remember perhaps the beginning of Psalm 137, um, the, uh, the, the people of Judah are in captivity in Babylon, and their captors taunt them, saying, 
uh, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And, and the people of Judah uh, reply, uh, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Right? So, um, um, so, by, so by putting aside the Gloria for this time, we recognize that we are in a foreign land as long as we're on the earth. When we're in heaven, there will be no end to the praise. There will be no end to singing words like that. But we, have to re- but, but we do this to recognize that we are not yet in heaven, that we are still on earth, a foreign land, a land of sin, a land where we ourselves are sinful. And, and because of that, we put aside words of praise in order to help us reflect on that sinfulness. Um, it's actually pretty well expressed in the hymn, Alleluia, Song of Gladness, which we sing on Transfiguration every year, because uh, during Lent, we also put away the word Alleluia. Um, and, the, and the third verse of that hymn says, uh, Alleluia cannot always be our song while here below. Alleluia, our transgressions make us for a while forgo, for the solemn time is coming when our tears for sin must flow. And then the end of the, stand, of the fourth stanza ends up, there to thee forever singing, alleluia, joyfully. So you could, you could insert you know, the same concept with the glory and excelsis, right? This cannot always be our song while here below because of our transgression. Uh, so we put it aside for Advent and Lent. And then, of course, that also then heightens the anticipation and the joyfulness of the glory and excelsis uh, on Christmas Eve when it comes back and we sing glory be to God on high again. Uh, we sing it, you know, and it's, it's really great on Christmas Eve because it's the, when, when, you know, it's the celebration of Christ's birth. It's when the angels sing it uh, and the shepherds, uh, with, to the shepherds out in the fields. Uh, so it's especially uh, marvelous on Christmas Eve when we get to sing glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men again. And then uh, it's also, also uh, just beautiful at the Easter Vigil then. Um, you know, the Easter Vigil kind of is the bridge from Lent into Easter. So the Easter Vigil is kind of uh, still Lent when it starts. And then in the middle of the service, the pastor cries out, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And then you sing the Gloria and it's, it's marvelous. And uh, the ancient rubrics, we don't have bells here. Um, the old rubrics uh, uh, prescribed uh, for Easter that you, would, that you would peel the tower bells during the singing of the Gloria and Excelsis. And so if we had tower bells, we'd do that, but, but we don't, so we can imagine it. Anything else on the Gloria or its ceremonies? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Thou only. This is the only one who is holy. There is none other. There is none beside him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've they've summarized the way of salvation, and now they're clarifying that this is the only way. That's good. Now, the question is, is can I do the salutation in seven minutes? We'll give it a shot. All righty. Yeah, it's really short, but it's deceptive. All right, so, um, so the salutation, the Lord be with you and...
Dominus Vobiscum. You forgot to say et cum spiritua. That's okay. So the, there it is. And with your spirit, or thy spirit, depending on how modern of English you want to use. All right, so there's a lot to be said about the, uh, the salutation. The first thing, um, so when Pastor Clemmer at the beginning of Bible class to get your attention says the Lord be with you, the right response really is, and also with you. Uh, when, when we start announcements after church with the Lord be with you, the right response really is, at that, in those cases, and also with you. Um, when it's being used in a liturgical function, though, the right response is really, and with thy spirit. And I'll explain a little bit why. Um, so so uh, the, the, the salutation is not as some maybe would call it a holy howdy. All right. This isn't a, if we were going to if it was a holy howdy, why do we wait till we're 10 minutes into church to do it? Right. Why wouldn't we start church with if, 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 if all it was was, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Right. We do that at the beginning. Um, so the salutation uh, is what I call an acknowledgement of ordination. That is how it functions. So the pastor um, standing according to his office extends the you can call it a greeting, that's fine, but it's not just a greeting. The Lord be with you. And when you say, and with thy spirit, what you are saying is, we acknowledge that you are in fact the pastor that God has put into this place. And we acknowledge that by, by acknowledging the spirit, the measure of the spirit uh, that was given in ordination. Right? We believe that there is a measure of the spirit given to men in ordination. Right? Uh, the fact that the Spirit is given different measures is, is clearly in the Bible, right? I mean, um, all Christians have it through baptism, but not every Christian had it the same way the apostles did, right? Um, so the Spirit uh, is given in different measures for different purposes. And the pastor has a specific measure of the Spirit um, to do his job, all right? Um, but, but, but he won't be forced on you, right? So there are certain things that the pastor does um, in the stead of the congregation as their pastor by virtue of his office. Um, so there are certain things, um, right? So the first one of these is the collect of the day. Um, the pastor is going to stand up there and pray on your behalf. He's going to pray in your place. That's why he says it by himself. But he's not going to do it without your permission. If you refuse to acknowledge him as your pastor, that's fine. He won't make you. He won't force himself on you. Um, so, so there's a sense. If I were to say, the Lord be with you, and y'all just kind of looked at me and said, yeah, no. I'd turn around, close the book, and church would be open. Right? Um, so, um, so there's historically four salutations in the service. Each of them preceding a, uh, a part of the service that the pastor does by virtue of his office as pastor. Uh, the first is the collect of the day where he will, uh, where he will stand there and pray uh, in your place. Um, sometimes, he, uh, sometimes he says the salutation before he does something standing in the place of God. Um, now this one fell out even before TLH. But historically, after the epistle, after the Alleluia verse, uh, there's another salutation there. The pastor would say, The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 10th chapter. Right? Uh, to read the Gospel to you is a function of his office. And so you again acknowledge his place before he reads the Gospel to you. 
Uh, and, then, and then flowing from the gospel is the preaching, right? So, uh, so when you say, and with thy spirit, and he reads the gospel and preaches, by saying, and with thy spirit, you are authorizing him not only to read the gospel, but also to then preach uh, on that gospel. Uh, just a moment, then. It's the third salutation uh, at the beginning of the sacrament of the altar, right? Uh, he is not going to stand in Christ's place and consecrate this bread and wine to be Christ's body and blood um, apart from his office. And if you refuse, uh, unless you acknowledge him to be your pastor, he's not going to do it. And then the fourth one, right before the benediction, again, standing in God's place, putting God's name on the people. Um, he again seeks your acknowledgement that you recognize that he has been put here by God for this specific function. Yes, thanks. So the issue of lay readers is kind of sticky, and the synod can't quite agree what we think about that. Um, it comes up at convention, I think, literally every convention, whether or not it's good, whether or not we should have lay readers. Um, I will say, right, um, I do like the idea. I absolutely like the way we do it, that whoever's preaching reads the gospel, because I do think, um, I, I do think it makes a ton of sense, uh, especially for the reason just given. Um, as far as lay people, laymen reading the, uh, the Old Testament epistle, uh, the biggest argument against it is that the pastor is um, the steward of the word of God in this place. And it really is his function to be proclaiming not just the gospel, but even the Old Testament and epistle um, to the congregation. Um, and so that's, that's the biggest argument in favor of the pastor doing all of the readings. And that is certainly where my preference lies. Uh, I certainly would I, would, I would hold a much stronger line on the pastor only, only the pastor reading the gospel. I would, uh, some churches don't, but I would, I would, I would draw that line. I would, I would stand for that very clearly. Uh, the, yeah, there's a lot of issues. The biggest thing is that pastors, at least theoretically, there's exceptions. Uh, Part of the, this is more of a practical problem than a theological problem. Um, so pastors are trained, like we are trained in public speaking, how to speak, how to read publicly, how to enunciate, so that you can understand us. And even though we give you the readings, theoretically, you wouldn't need the readings printed out to be able to understand what the pastor is saying from the readings. Uh, the biggest problem is sometimes when you have, when you have laymen doing the readings, uh, Sometimes they, they don't want to do it, but the church always has elders read it. And so you have a guy up there who's a fine elder, a fine Christian, but he's not trained to read publicly. And so he sits there and mumbles. Um, and that's nothing against his character. That just means he's not particularly well-suited to that function. Um, but because he's an elder and elders at that church do it, he's on a rotation and he has to do it. Um, so there's that practical consideration as well. Um, so anyway... Uh, but, my, but I would take him, I, I am pretty, I am very firmly on the side of only the pastor should read the gospel. Um, especially if you're going to have the, the, the salutation in front of it, but 
Every church I know of that does the salutation before the uh, gospel reading has the pastor reading the gospel. So we're out of time. Any questions on anything that can be answered quickly, that is? All right. Uh, God bless you all. We'll see you in church. I think, just I think it's a parable, but for what it's worth. Yeah.